Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In tribal experience, as in American mythology, life originates with the forefather. How often on this program have we mentioned the blasphemous depiction of George Washington seated in glory, riding upon the clouds, flanked by the angelic hosts? In this sense, the capital rotunda is a kind of platonic fold, an event horizon where the crisp, clean philosophical constructs inside our brains collide with the messy and often painful complexities of the real world. Are you sure that we are different than the other nations? Whose image is this? and whose inscription. For all our talk of universal values, we, like the Romans, worship our tribal patriarchs etched in the stones of our eternal city. Not as pretty as the one in Italy, but the same thing. Thank God, our only father and patriarch, not for Zacharias, but for God's willingness to put his mouth on the lips of Zacharias for our sake, as he did with the prophets of old. Much prettier to my Semitic ears than a building with a painting of George, Romulus, or anyone else. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 70 to 73. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 451 of the Bible as Literature podcast in his introduction to the Old Testament. Father Paul explains how religion evolved in the ancient world. It began in a nomadic setting around the patriarch in the wilderness. So let's just think about this for a minute, because Matthew ends with the poor following the shepherd under the heavens— Fast forward past Mark to Luke, which begins with a priest locked in a temple underneath a ceiling. So we have a shepherd under the heavens at the end of Matthew, and we have a priest in the temple palace complex in Jerusalem under a ceiling, a structure built by the hand of man. How is that possible? Because the way religion evolved 
in order to find security and permanence. The system of worshiping the patriarch as a deity which depends on dynasty gravitated towards sources of water and the building up of infrastructure, which eventually evolved into settlements and cities and the building of towns and structures, and then eventually a building to codify the divinity of the patriarch. That's why at the beginning of Luke, you have to crush Zacharias before you co-opt him. Because you cannot allow the illusion of the permanence of Zacharias. And that's how Scripture uses the prophet or the tribal chief or the patriarch or the matriarch or the patrician, whatever head you have in your particular setting. That's how that person in a position of authority, the archi, is co-opted to channel the dabarim, of the invisible, unseen God, Elohim, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So just as soon as Zacharias starts speaking, we are quickly reminded here in Luke that he's not permanent. No prophet is permanent. The Lord Jesus Christ himself, as we said last week, will ultimately be canceled. It's the Dabarim that are spoken by the Father that have been spoken from the ages of old <laughs> that are continually spoken. It's the Dabarim that are spoken from the Midbar that will continue to be spoken. They're not spoken from the city. They didn't gravitate towards this settlement to continue the illusion of man-made permanence. They stayed out in the wilderness because the permanence that comes from the heavens does not depend on human dynasty. Yes, human dynasty is based on something that we can get a grip on. We can draw our family tree, we know our relatives, we know their names, we know their stories, we want to get that grip on things. And you know, the priesthood is a dynasty as well. It was set up that way in scripture. We had the Levites, they come from the tribe of Levi. That's how things were set up. Already in this chapter, we've got several Levites, people from this tribe, this dynasty. But the problem with the dynasty is that human beings start to co-opt it because it's something that they can grasp. It's something they can mold. It's something they can feel. It's something they can create something with, as opposed to remembering what was created. Now, we've been talking a lot about the priest because we think about this in a religious context, but you know, when you study religion in general, there are certain questions that religion is always trying to answer. You know, what is a good life? How do we live? You know, all these kinds of things religion is always trying to answer. In our society, we don't just have registered religious organizations who are doing that. We have news organizations doing that. We have politicians who are doing that. We have CEOs who are doing that. We have companies that are doing that. We have TED Talks that are doing that. Thinking about Zechariah simply as a priest is easy, but if you think about him as the CEO who's not allowed to speak, the TED Talk speaker who's not allowed to speak, the politician who is not allowed to speak, until the Lord puts his word in his mouth. 
Now, a lot of people get excited about this passage because of the religious experience that Zechariah had, talking to an angel and learning about the heavens and what's going to happen and things like that. But for us, the reader, Gabriel is not for us. The word that God put in Zechariah's mouth is for us. We don't base ourselves based on something that we're waiting from Gabriel. We have the word here and we listen to it. It's not a dynasty that comes from our loins that we shape, that we grip, that we create from, but it's a word that we obey. And that is how the Lord functions. It's always based on a word that the hearer obeys. And in case you were wondering, Zechariah had this experience. He got to listen to the angel, woo-woo. But he wasn't able to do anything once he did. The only time, the only moment that he was allowed to function was when the Lord's word was put in his mouth. That is how the Lord functions. The Lord can't afford to deal with Zechariah's ego. He can't. He tried to deal with David's ego. It was a mess. He's been dealing with egos left and right all throughout Scripture. It's always a hassle. So just shut it down before it even starts. Zechariah, you're not allowed to speak until I tell you to speak. And when I tell you to speak, I'll even give you the words. That's it. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, and in the Greek it says, ap eonos, from the ages. And of course, the one who is speaking is Elohim. And please don't play the game of saying, well, it was Jesus speaking. No, it was the Father speaking within the context of Luke. It was the Father speaking from of old. The Father is the head. I realize in an American setting that gets confusing because you all call your dad by his first name once you hit 17. Not in the Bulos household. Not at 17, not at 25, not at 95. You will never call me by my first name if you are my son or daughter. Not even if you're their friend. Period. As my dad used to say, end of subject. Zip it, Yamark. I know that's uncomfortable in 2022, but as someone said to me recently, you're an anachronism, and I'm very much at ease with that statement. The point is, he keeps speaking to his prophets from of old to every generation as he intercedes in Genesis with every generation in order to provide life. And just as he intercedes in the womb of each matriarch to make it functional to make it the womb of mercy to provide life, the patriarchs rebel and try to make stuff with their own hands. But he is the one who is merciful by speaking. 
his dabarim, from the ages to each generation, by the mouth of the prophets. The prophets aren't the ones who are merciful. Zacharias is not merciful. Zacharias didn't lead the poor into the wilderness. If God didn't send Gabriel at the outset of Luke, we'd all still be locked inside the prison of the palace temple complex in Jerusalem. Luke was written to rescue the lovers of God, O Theophilus, from the brand mark of circumcision and slavery to the temple palace complex. That is what is happening here in the story. Zacharias is not your champion. Gabriel is your champion by the right hand of God, who is speaking once again, interceding to provide life through the merciful womb of Elizabeth and the merciful womb of Mary. It's a beautiful story, Rich. Yeah, the story that's being played out here in 68 and 69, his visitation, his redemption, a horn of salvation, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, that just as at the beginning of 70, kathos, these are all put together as a single thing. He speaks, and this is what happens. Now, this is significant when you read this in the Greek, so I'm going to translate it literally. Just as he spoke through the mouth of his holy from the age prophets his. Okay, I know that's hard to follow. Through the mouth of the holy from the age prophets his. So we take his, but first point, one mouth, multiple prophets in the Greek. Second, holy. What makes them holy? Are they holy because he sought out holy men so that they would speak his word? Or did they show themselves to be holy because they spoke his word? Let's take Zechariah, for example. What do we know about him? All we know about him is that he showed up to work on time. <laughs> that was the extent of his holiness. And, uh, you know, if that's the case, you know, Americans, I have to say, have to be one of the most holy nations on earth because we show up to work on time. So that's what makes me think that's not the criterion <laughs> that you're supposed to show up to work on time. That's all he did. But what makes him holy is the word that comes out of him. Because that word comes from the mouth, and that's the mouth of God. God's mouth produces the words, they just come out of Zechariah's head. That's it. And it has been this way since the beginning, okay? Now, since the world, does that mean there have been prophets all along from the very beginning? Because how could that be the case? We know that there were no people around at the very beginning. That's a red herring. It's not about since the prophets were around since the beginning of the world. Since there's been a world, there has been God speaking. That's the point. Since there's been time, there's been speaking. Because that is what God does. He speaks. That is what defines God, is that he speaks. And therefore, 
as long as there's been a world, as long as there's been people, as long as there's been prophets, as long as there's been salvation, visitation, redemption, the Lord has been speaking. And he hasn't found holy people to do the speaking on his behalf. He has made them speak, which is what makes them holy. His word makes them holy. His word sets them apart because it's his word, which is qualitatively absolutely different by definition from human words. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. How does this teaching save us from our enemies? By correcting our steps. Because if you are under the instruction of Elohim, I have news for you. You don't have enemies. And you will hear later in Luke, when you're walking along the way and you see someone, the only question you need to ask yourself is, how are you neighbor towards that someone? Not, is that person a friend or an enemy? The question, is that person a friend or an enemy, is the calculation of a king. But there is only one king in the heavens. So therefore, the only valid question isn't even, is that person my neighbor? Because they're in proximity to you. They're obviously your neighbor, because the question neighbor is a question of locality, not identity, which is a discussion for another day. So you see your neighbor. How are you acting towards them? The whole question of whether they're an enemy is a non-question. It's an invalid question. You have no enemies if you are baptized. That's the difficulty with putting a cross on your flag. And difficulty is not a strong enough word. Let me rephrase. That's the grave, unforgivable sin against the Holy Spirit. Because you are rejecting Paul's teaching. When you put a cross on your flag, you can't do it. It's incompatible. It is incompatible with this teaching because you can't have enemies. In 1 Samuel, the Ark of the Covenant fights for itself, it doesn't need an army. We have to get this through our heads. We're not hearing scripture. So it's salvation, it's victory from our enemies because we accept our defeat. That is the teaching of the cross. It's a teaching. You cannot put a teaching on a flag. Once you put it on a flag, you are a pagan, and it is your talisman, and we are back to square one with city building. Rich, can I be more clear than that? Can I be more clear than that? Yeah, I mean, it, 
it's too confusing to human beings. We just can't help ourselves. I mean, when I was in the Netherlands and I saw a procession, you know, they had a procession with the acolytes, they were holding the banners, and then they had the priests come through and they had the statues of Jesus and the Virgin. And then they had the rich people in town with their old clothing and their sabers and their weapons and clearly at least some vestige of some ancient military. Like, we can't do it any other way. We don't know how to do it as human beings. That's why the words of Zechariah are precious, because we can't come up with them ourselves. Again, reading this in the Greek is beautiful, because the first word, salvation, in verse 71, soterian, is accusative. It's the object of the verb, but what verb? Because it's starting with this noun. It's the verb in 70, speaks. He spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets salvation from our enemies. This word, as you're saying, Father, is the salvation. Because when it is imprinting on our mind, when it is reformatting our brain, who we thought were our enemies are just more servants of the Most High, the one who's been speaking since the world began. That's all we have. They're just other servants of the Most High. And if they're put in front of us to serve, then who are we to ignore our master servants? We don't have that choice. But when we put the cross on our flag, and then we look to see what flag they've got, do they have a cross on it? Okay, maybe they're our friends. Oh, they don't have a cross on it, then they're not our friends. This is all malarkey. It's malarkey. I mean, how else do I say it? doesn't matter which procession you're in. You know, if you're for the procession, you're in. If you're against the procession, you're out, whatever. I mean, this is the kind of nonsense we fall for, and that's why, Father, the most dangerous thing we can do is to put our weapons in the church and to put our cross on our weapons. Because then it becomes entirely human, and those attending, we scandalize them so they can no longer hear the words of Zacharias. To show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. This is a tricky statement. It sounds nice until you consider the fact that there's something wrong with your fathers. Pay attention. Make your ear listen. You have to put your ear to the ground. And what I mean is your ear has to submit. You have to be prostrate when you hear this verse. Because all of us elevate our fathers. The reason we do so is because we want to believe in dynasty. And that's what we were talking about at the outset. This is the trick. I want to be anti-Hellenistic and be Semitic scriptural and say that I am Mark of a locality, not Mark of a certain identity, because identity is philosophical. So I might say I am Mark of this borough or this street, which is how you would identify yourself in a non-Hellenistic setting. You're from a locality. But the problem is, in a non-tribal setting, as you said maybe one or two episodes ago, Richard, I appreciated your point, 
where there's no arhi, there's no matriarch, there's no patriarch, being from a locality is non-functional. Because even though I'm from a particular locality in Minnesota, there's nothing that binds me with the other people in this locality. We have district leaders, but look at the way that our politicians keep rezoning because the district leaders are non-functional. So there is nothing that holds us together. Okay? But in a tribal setting, you are bound together. Look at the way people are worshiping. I didn't want to ever talk about Queen Elizabeth, but it's a great example. Look at the way people are gushing over Queen Elizabeth. It's because she happens to be one of the last matriarchal institutions that people can project some kind of tribal connection onto in the world. And in the absence of any connection, everyone's globbing onto her. Now, it's unfortunate because she represents white privilege. We all understand this. But the mechanism is the example that we are trying to impress upon you, that this is how it works in human community. But what Scripture is saying is that your desire to worship Queen Elizabeth and to glob onto her is your lust for permanence, your lust for security, and that's the sin. So it keeps the station of Queen Elizabeth, but it emasculates her and demotes her, co-opting her station in order to speak. It's words which are permanent. She is not. That is the only point that matters. And it is using it to make sure that we act correctly towards one another. And it is using her station to mitigate and tamp down our lust for permanence and security, which is what ends up causing us, as Paul says, to consume and devour one another. It's actually not that complicated. So we're trying to walk this fine line on the podcast to explain that you have to accept that headship is a part of human biology, but you have to submit to the way in which Scripture is manipulating and tamping down headship to use it for its purposes to save us from each other. Because at the end of the day, if we are not kept in check, we will, as Paul says, consume and devour one another. It's as simple as that. And part of that is the worship of our ancestors. I mean, look at the Romans. The Romans were a bunch of criminal thugs. They tried to whitewash the fact that they were criminals and thugs and mafia figures that followed Romulus to establish their settlement. I mean, they were so unsavory, they had to kidnap women in order to breed. And then later they whitewashed the story of the Sabine women and talked about how they honored them in Roman politics. And it became a legend of Romulus. But at the end of the day, the Romans were brutal criminals. That's what we are. That's how they establish power. And that story keeps repeating itself. In order to build their, quote, civilization, 
they had to beat everybody up. And at some point at scale, that fight will get so out of control that we'll consume ourselves. We will fulfill Paul's warning in Galatians. And what did the Romans do? They talk about Rome as the eternal city and how great Romulus is. And they worship their fathers. Where do we go from there? We hear how Scripture decapitates our fathers and emasculates our fathers and says there is one father in the heavens. That's the precise difference between the story that you're telling and the story that we're seeing here, the human story versus God's story, because all those actions that you described were performed by human beings of whatever station. But here, again, I'm going to get into the grammar here. He spoke salvation to perform the mercy and to remember his covenant. God has a purpose, but it's not for my life. It's not even for Zechariah's life. He's got a purpose. He finds people. He makes them holy because he sticks his word in them, and then it comes out. But the reason why he sticks his word in them is so that he can bring his salvation and perform that mercy and remember his covenant. It's about what God does. God visited, redeemed, raised up salvation, and spoke by the mouth of his prophets. The mouth, his mouth. He spoke salvation to perform mercy and remember the covenant. We're hearing the story of God, not of Zechariah, not of people, not of Israel, not of Christians, not of Jews, none of that. It is the story of God. Zechariah is singing a panegyric to the God who put these words in his mouth, who does show mercy. I mean, we happen to be lucky that it seems that this God who has power over everything decided that his word was going to be one of salvation and of mercy, and it was going to be according to the covenant that he swore. This is true mercy, that this God who's all-powerful since the beginning speaks a word that we can benefit from if we listen to it and follow it. The only way we are God's enemies is by choosing to become his enemies. <laughs> but unfortunately, the way that we're set up as human beings it makes it very hard to choose otherwise. And that's the difficult situation of the human being. But God continues to speak through the mouth of his prophets. Every time we read Luke 1, we get to hear the words of Zechariah, we get to hear the words previously spoken in this chapter about the salvation that he brings. And we can have hope in that, not hope in what we do or in the flag or in the weapons or the defense or in the peace or the war or anything, simply in the word. That is the only way, that is the only means, that is the only voice we can follow. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.